Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation features Claire G. Coleman. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. My name's Andrew Popel. Every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling to help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands, pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, that these are unceded lands, and that treaty has never been made with the First Nations of this country. Now, Claire G. Coleman is a Noongar writer from Western Australia. She is a great favourite and guest on this show. We've been fortunate to have her earlier in the year. Her debut novel was the award-winning Terranalius. She's the author of the novel The Old Lie and Lies Damn Lies, which Claire joined us for earlier in the year, is an historical cultural exploration of the ongoing impact of colonial invasion. Today, Claire's joining us with her third novel. It's called Enclave. Enclave takes us to the community of Safetown. There, residents live a comfortable life, secure in the knowledge they're protected by the wall. Within that concrete edifice, security patrol their streets and drones surveil the airways to ensure even the smallest transgression is met with swift consequences. Christine has spent her entire life basking in the comfort that her father's wealth and that Safetown's security provide the daughter of an influential family. Sure, her father is a distant figure, her mother a high-functioning alcoholic, but they've just bought her an apartment, they've extended her a line of seeming unlimited credit. Christine has space and agency within the confines of Safetown. And Safetown was built to protect families like Christine's, and she should be happy with this safety. Except her best friend Jack is missing, and Christine has begun to notice differences. Differences between her and her servants. Differences between people who don't quite look like her. Join me as we discover Claire G. Coleman's Enclave. Hello. Hello. How are you, Claire? Not bad, not bad at all. How are you? I am really good. This um this looks like a little bit more relaxed for you. Was it, it was about three or four months ago we were chatting and you were on the side of the highway somewhere? Yes, yes, I was. <laughs> um with that yeah, I was in um yeah, I was in South Australia. Funny thing about that is, because um, we're talking about lies down lies, I was talking about politics. Um, as as uh, and at the end of the interview, some old guy who'd been standing milling around looking reading info signs mm. turned around and said, "That's really interesting," and walked off. So it was actually pretending to milling around reading info signs, actually listening to our conversation. <laughs> that's awesome. That's sort of that's really cool. You just like tune into the final draft podcast for more. Um, that's it. That's incredible. I mean, I guess you don't want people eavesdropping on all your conversations, but I'm so glad that he got to discover a little bit about the book. Yeah. <laughs> I think Lily gave him a business card, I think, mm-hmm. with my book cover on it. Oh, incredible. That's awesome. And now we have Enclave. Yes. Thank you for the review. I read it yesterday, True. I think. Can I also compliment? I'm sure this is probably not something you have a, a lot to do with. One, on the cover of Enclave, but two, the fact that your your arc kind of looks like a book. So when I get sent an arc, I, I, I still want to keep it. This is going on my bookshelf. And it it looks beautiful. Like, it doesn't it doesn't look like a pre-release. I have um, – I insist on um – on um, 
kind of cover veto and on discussion discussing the cover. They went to about thirty or forty or something revisions of the cover before mm. I before I said it was good enough. So yeah, it has something to do with the cover. But whether or not you get a really good looking arc mm. basically depends on on um, how um, many books hash that thing you're going to sell. Right. So the bigger bigger name you are, the prettier your arc. Like the arc for Terranullius was mm. basically a monochrome was basically monochrome. Right. Yep. The arc for um, for um, the old lie was was three color cover. Like they use a three color cheaper three color matte printing method. And this one looks exactly the same as the old book, but with there's the new book, but without the new book has some um, high gloss and nice. the UV reactive high gloss spots on it, nice. spot gloss. But it's, oh well, look. I mean, I is exactly the same. I like it. This is. Just a just a weird note to start the conversation on, but I like it. I appreciate that I've got an arc that I I feel happy to put on my bookshelf for for friends to discover or for when I want to go back and read. It is a very <laughs> it is a very unique novel. I can't wait to get into it. We should get into it. But um, right, let's get yeah. into it. Claire G. Coleman is a Noongar writer from Western Australia. She's now based in Nam. Claire's debut novel, the award-winning Terranullius. She's the author of the novel The Old Lie and Lies, Damned Lies, an historical and cultural exploration of the ongoing impact of colonial invasion. And I reckon it's a pretty good year when I get to have two chats with Claire, and that's what's about to happen because Claire's third novel, Enclave, is out in the world. Welcome back, Claire. It is terrific to have you on. It's really good to be on the show again. I actually really enjoy talking to you. You call, like you know, call us anytime. You don't have to write a book, um, but we're always happy when you do. I want to. No, take- okay, I will. Like if I if I want to give an opinion on something, I'll give you a call. Oh yeah, I can sell that, Claire's. <laughs> Claire, um, we got to get. We, we have to come up with a title for this, but yeah, like Claire's gonna Claire's gonna give us give us her um give us her two cents. All right, let's take Claire, let's take people to Safe Town. Enclave, yeah. Enclave takes us to the community of Safe Town. There, residents live a comfortable life, secure in the knowledge they are protected by the wall. Within that concrete edifice, security patrols their streets and drones surveil the airways to ensure even the smallest transgression is met with swift consequences. Christina spent her entire life basking in the comfort the comfort that her father's wealth and safe town security provide the daughter of an influential family. Sure, her father is a distant figure, her mother a high-functioning alcoholic, but they've just bought her an apartment and extended her a line of seemingly unlimited credit. Safe town was built to protect families like Christine's, and she should be happy with this safety. Except her best friend Jack is missing, and Christine has begun to notice that things are different. Her servants are people who don't quite look like her and she is not quite like everyone else. Claire, how do you feel about that introduction? <laughs> I feel like I've, I've covered the beginning of the book and I mm. don't want to go too much into the rest of it. What would, how, is that how you introduce Safe Town? Um, it's probably better than how I would introduce Safe Town. So you've done quite well. Um, it, it's really hard to introduce one's own book often mm. but uh yeah you, you've you've managed to introduce the um the conflict and the and the story and what and what it's all about and and the world and the and the protagonist without giving away any any significant spoilers which when reviewing me is is actually not 
I'm not the easiest author to review. I'll be perfectly honest. I want to come. I want to come to that fact in a minute. First, I want to acknowledge that Enclave is, it seems to be stamped with the worst of our recent history. There's a wall separating people. There's devastated Pacific Islands rebuilt as artificial communities. There's near sentient algorithms tracking the population. Can you talk me a little bit through your world building? I mean, is this, are you literally just taking the news to the nth degree? Was this stuff keeping you up at night? It's a bit of all that. I, some of the things, I mean, part of the intent was to take um, the world we are choosing to live in mm. and extend it into the into the future and see what would happen if we don't change our path. And and um, and that, that's kind of what, what the plan. And, of course, and some of the stuff w- was done with that intent, to, to show the worst of human nature extended to the, to the, to the um, greatest extent I can think of. Some of it was stuff that was genuinely keeping me up late at night, um, and some of it was probably stuff that I dropped in without really thought about it. That that thing when, which all authors do and often don't admit to doing, which is things we're thinking about but not but not very coherently slip into our books, and and that becomes our first coherent thought about something that's annoying. So some of those things I didn't. I, I, they kind of they were in my subconscious, but not in my conscious mind until I wrote them and I went, oh yeah, that is actually kind of something that makes sense for our future. And and part of um, the um, paranoia came from, it's, it's, it's not very well known, but I, I have a um, an honours degree in AI theory. It's not very well known. That I, well, I don't, it's not like a secret, but everyone's so shocked, I think, if they forget. But I have an honours degree in computer science specialising in artificial intelligence. And I could see, back when I did that degree, I finished in 2006, I could see the extent to which things like the, the algorithms used by Facebook and Instagram and Twitter to spy on our everyday lives could, were, were possible. And that's fun. And it made me paranoid about artificial intelligence back then. And now, um, like 16 years later, the, we're allowing countries to surveil us, um, not countries, companies to surveil us, not even governments, allowing the, the companies we buy products from to keep an eye on us. And, and market things to us when really we should be thinking about how much should um, Google, Facebook, et cetera, know about our lives. I mean, realistically, it'd probably be safer if countries were doing it, not companies. Companies are very savvy about this. Um, looking at the administration we just got rid of, they probably would have messed it up if we left it to them. But uh, yes. it, it is this incredible, scary technology I'd I'd like to also yeah I'd like to also acknowledge you you sort of talked about how getting it on the page was your first sort of way of coherently dealing with the things in your mind like mm-hmm. that's you and that's wonderful you know the rest of the world the first time we coherently say something that's been on our mind is usually drunk on Saturday night and we immediately regret it like you've you're onto yes. something there we should be writing this stuff down and 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 that's right and of course. I'm, I'm, I have a, in a partially enviable position in that saying things that everyone's scared to say mm. is kind of my job. So, um, and, and people respect me more if I say the things that they're thinking and are scared to say. It kind of increases the amount of respectability I get, whereas people who work a nine-to-five in a, um, in a 
office or something. If they say the things that I say, they probably might be they might they might risk being ostracized at work. But if I say them because I'm a writer, because I'm a, a writer known for digging into the stuff that people are, are willing to say, mm. um, I can't be harmed for doing it. We're we're on a we're on a tangent here, but I want to continue with it because I I know because I follow you on social media that your your choice and your sort of your your fearless ability to to say the things that need to be said doesn't it's not without cost and that you do get uh, targeted by trolls um, in your novels this is an incredible thing that you do uh, because you are crafting a narrative that you know people can think about but how, I mean how do you feel broadly do you ever kind of just think oh my goodness or is that when the is that when the trolls win when you kind of start to edit yourself yeah well yeah it's um, sometimes I feel like um, the social media stuff um, is a bit of a is a bit of a risk and kind of a personal risk. But I don't think I real I genuinely don't think I can receive any actual harm from from this. And it's um, a case of all I cop is a bit of um, emotional abuse from trolls, which um, has a limited ability to to cause actual harm. You know, of course, people get harmed by bullying controls but I haven't been so I'm like I'm okay it's more case I don't think I'll ever I don't think I'll ever stop because yeah if I stop it'll make them it'll let them win the um the social media trolls what they're really about is removing the voices of everyone who's not like them mm-hmm. and if we if we remove ourselves then they've won I see what you did there. This is a very clever segue back to Enclave, where we very much have to confront the idea of how voices are being silenced, how they're being removed. And to do that, we're going to have to look at Christine. And, like, in the nicest possible way, you've you've drawn a fairly unlikable character here. Or of, like, I found her really hard to like initially. But of course, it is going to be that journey that enthralls us, where we go with mm-hmm. this character. But her attitudes, though, just can be really tough to read. I wondered how you felt about Christine and what it was like writing her. Like, what was your hook into Christine as your your lead? <coughs> um, think about Christine. They, we all know somebody. Well, not maybe where we all, but I know several people who have started out with quite deplorable personal attitudes about other people and about life and who have matured into people who are, um, who are a bit more, for want of a better word, a bit more woke and a bit more um, socially responsible. We, everyone knows people like that or, or so, to an extent. We know people who are a little bit like that or a lot like that. And I want to write that character, the, the character who's, um, who goes from being someone you would not want to like to, and then becomes over time someone who you would be rooting for, and that's kind of, um, it's 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 in a way an extension of my absolute love of likable villains, okay. which which is a, a constant thing in my head. But um, the also the idea that um, well, a protagonist who does what we all do, which is we mature, mm. and I want to I, um, I want to show. <coughs> I want to show a different sort of um, um, coming of age story where somebody where coming of age is someone coming into social responsibility. Yeah, and I want I, we, I again I want to come back to that arc that Christine goes through, but something about the relatability that I also wanted to note here because Safe Town it did not seem to me 
like a huge leap from many of the kind of exclusive or more high income areas that you'll find in most of our capital cities. Do you think, and slightly tongue in cheek here, but do you think Enclave could have been a different story if Christine turned out to be a teal independent? <laughs> the funny thing about that is um, um, it's one of those things where I wrote, I wrote um, Enclave um, during the work, I, it's, it, it was written quite a while ago. I can't remember exactly when I started writing it, but it was because of the, it got delayed, the release got delayed. So it was probably written more than finished about two years ago, I, I think, because it's been delayed so so much. Um, it was supposed to be September last year release originally. So that means, and that's normally um, 14, 16 months when it was written. So it must have been delivered like two years ago or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and the funny thing, that, 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 that is two years ago at the, the um the kind of the depth of our hopelessness in in trying to kind of overthrow the the um, environmentally destructive and socially responsible far right in Australia, and of course if I wrote it now I don't think I could I would write the same book now and I'm hoping that that it hasn't lost its relevance now that we've kicked out that government but mm. yes um um I could see I can see the um it is almost like Christine's um, development is almost like somebody going from being a liberal voter to a teal voter, um, and it's like it's exactly, and that's kind of what our society is doing. So, so Christine has moved with our society. Um, is moving with our society at the moment. You're making high economic areas seem way more sympathetic than they they probably are. Um, how do we how do we progress here? I need to I need to acknowledge that Christine's story starts to progress within her, you know, pristine community, she starts to notice there's a sameness. She notices her mother's heavy drinking, her highly surgically enhanced friends. The fact that everything's perfect, but that, you know, it's only perfect for certain people. And Christine is beginning to realise she is not one of those people. And I'm going to, I want to fly really close to the sun here in terms of noting that this may not go the way people think it's going to go. Um, well, so, anyone's my, one of my fans that probably expect that anyway. Well, like, though, yeah, no, we're good. I know, I know as one of your fans, how we, how people are thinking. I felt like Enclave, it, it did, it gave us a few signals about its direction. So outcasts in a society uh, or in seemingly perfect societies, they often sort of become, freedom fighters, you know, there's an underground band or something like that. You've entered a broadly dystopian space here. Um, and I, I am only saying things that kind of, you know, I, I, I want to muddy the waters of expectation. Mm-hmm. But how do, you, how do you feel about just the genre dystopian fiction? Were you entering that space consciously and did you want to do something uh, um, with it? Uh, yeah, it was, um, it was conscious. I was... When I had first had the idea for um, for Enclave, I was wanting to lean into a, a near future dystopia and mm. see what, what I could do with that genre because I'm a, I'm a fan of that genre. Mm. I love reading it, and um, so yeah, it was, a, it was very consciously a dystopia. Mm. And um, of course, what we what we forget about dystopias is historically every dystopia um, and we've had in the world has been a utopia for someone mm. and every utopia in the world has been a dystopia for somebody else. There's a, there's a, like, you know, the classic example of um, when Australia was founded as a, as a colony, it was, a, it was like the, the promised land for a lot of um, 
working class British people or middle class British people came here and became very wealthy. In the meantime, Aboriginal people were being murdered and raped and oppressed. Um, if you think about the Athenian democracy, it was a, like considered to be a, a cultural and socio-political utopia, but only landed men could um, vote and they had slaves. So there's no, there's, there is no, um, what we consider to be a utopia, someone of might consider to be a dystopia, and what somebody we consider dystopia, somebody wants it that way or it wouldn't be that way. Mm. And we, we kind of forget that about dystopians. Even, um, you know, even old Tom Moore, he appreciated his society needed to exist in, and, and it was, it was a, a fundamental tenet of his society that they were in conflict with other societies. And a part of the functioning was that sort of to and fro conflict with the other societies because they weren't his utopia. And, and don't forget the um, um, that, and I like reminding people of this, when Thomas More wrote Utopia, he, um, when it was translated into, um, the word was translated into English, where Utopia became word in English, people were pronouncing it with the, the, um, the um, Greeks, with the, like the Greek um, letter for that's rewrite as EU, which mm. means um, a better, something better. Whereas Thomas More intended the OU pronunciation um, version of U, which is how he wrote it in Greek, which is so in Greek, the word utopia, as Thomas More used it, means a place that doesn't exist or can't exist. So, um, if, so even Thomas More accepted that utopias are impossible. Mm. Right now, I'm, I, I, don't, I don't know about you. I have this thing where certain things just put songs in my head. So now I'm just going to have to play Augie Marches, There Is No Such Place, under, under this section of the, the conversation. Sure. Why not? Um, dystopias, dystopias often have a fraught relationship with characters from marginalised communities. I feel like sort of when we, when we see uh, a dystopia, there's, there's usually sort of the, the hero who is emerging from the, you know, the, the, the imperfect, perfect utopia, and it can often reinforce othering stereotypes, the people who live outside. I felt like Enclave, you were doing something very different. Yes, Safe Town is staffed by a class of workers who are exclusively non-white, but there is more to them and we don't spoilers uh you know we don't learn about it at the beginning of the book necessarily um what did you want to explore here so what you're saying no that's okay um so I was I was just thinking about the way you created that division, and again, without spoilers, because this does go into the progression of the narrative. But I was wondering what you wanted to explore here around agency and that juxtaposition between oppressors and the oppressed. Well, yeah, the, um, oppressors um, tend are always are trying to remove the agency from their from their from the people they're oppressing. That's kind of that's 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 fundamental to most forms of oppression. Think about, for example, in Australia's history, Aboriginal people had our rights to decide our own lives removed for generations, um, and people were locked up. People are locked up. That's a form of oppression. That's again removing people's agency, make their decisions. But I think um, a common mistake that is made by um, oppressive cultures is forgetting that the people they're removing agency from are capable of agency. Mm. There's this, um, in a racist or um, some other sort of um, prejudiced society, they tend to ignore 
or forget about the agency of the people that are pressing. They forget that people might find a way to resist or fight back. A lot of, not only that, but I think a lot of time oppressive cultures think the people who are being oppressed don't even want to resist or fight back. They, they might believe that people want to be um, quite happy in the position they're in. And I, I think um, it's interesting to consider that um, what would happen, um, what, what are ways that oppressed cultures can express um, agency in a kind of form of resistance? There's the classic, some, some forms of resistance in history, for example, have been um, workers or slaves simply refusing to work. The um, Gurindji walkout in in Wave Hill in um, the um, Northern Territory, their, their resistance was they refused to work for eight years. It was an eight-year-long strike. Now, that is a fairly um, strong form of of resistance. The only agency they had was to not work, and that's the agency they took. I'm also really interested, one, one way that oppressive regimes uh, – Invaders, colonizers, will work to uh, to oppress is to you try to remove like identity, and that may be through suppression and elimination of language, suppression of cultural practice, mm-hmm. um, suppression of I, I guess any way of expressing identity. What you show us in Safe Town, though, is it's almost. They've 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 taken I, I don't know how to describe it a prophylactic approach to that where. All the buildings are kind of the same, but with minor variations. Mm. All the women have had surgery to look almost the same. All the men are indistinguishable in their sort of grey business suits. Was that how? How was how were you forming that? Was that a, a sense of um, preemptive uh, kind of like social flattening? Well, if it, yeah, in in the novel, that's certainly. Um what it was, but if you think about, um, it's kind of an extreme version of, of what would ha- what happens if you are trying to, um, if you're trying to homogenize society, you, you um, it, it, you get enough, um, homogeneity and things begin to look very same. Of course, if you, if you're in a society that doesn't like difference, difference ceases to exist. Mm. Um, and that that's kind of a lead to that. It's kind of similar to um, to um, early communist regimes where everyone was in uniform. Mm. They kind of t- tried to homogenize society, like to squish out all the difference in in culture. And uh, that's kind of um, safe to ask. Whereas what what would what would you get if people do that to themselves? Mm. All right, I can only talk about Safe Town for so long without mm. acknowledging that there's a lot more to this book. First place we're going to go, your fans, Claire, your fans know that you like a twist in your narratives. Yes. In lieu of spoilers, though, can you tell me about how you go about structuring narrative? Like, are twists planned or do they emerge in the process? Generally, part of my process, um, and I can say this with confidence, so I don't think anyone else anyone would use this to steal my process, but I don't think it's that, that complicated or, or thought out idea anyway. I generally um, have very little of the story in um, planned out. I don't actually plan as such, but what I do have um, is um, 
I have twists built into the narrative from the beginning before I start writing. Yeah. I know what the twists are going to be. I don't necessarily know at which point of the book I'm going to deliver them, but I have a, a, um, a broad narrative arc in my mind. I never write it down, but it's in my mind at all times when I'm writing. And any twists that are put in are built into that from the beginning. They are always there. Otherwise, you can't really make them work. You have to know, um, in a way, you have to almost plot it backwards, mm-hmm. if that makes sense, or outwards from the, if there's a major twist. To use the example of Terra Nullius, which will help people who could probably most of your listeners would have read Terra Nullius. I wrote, in a way, I wrote the twist first from Terranalius, and then expanded the narrative out from there. So I wrote forward from it and backwards from it, you know, plotted forward and backwards from it to make it make sense. Mm. It's kind of what you have to do. You have to have the twist in mind all times. And, of course, my second novel, The Old Lie, had so many twists that people probably didn't get stabilised, and that was also the intent. I, I had All I knew was what the, um, the plot twists were and, and, and where I had to put them to make them work. I just kind of stumbled, the, built the story around that. So... Yeah, the story is always built around the twists. Yeah, and I think I think that was what unsettled me so much. Like, I know you like a twist. It wasn't. I I, I don't know if I was expecting a twist, but it was. Like, it was never out of the question. But in in working into a dystopian space, I think you you flagged for me. Like, I, I you, people feel like you know, I know how a narrative is going to run, and then you said no actually my dystopia doesn't work like that. So the twist happened and I was like, yeah, yeah, of course there's going to be what that's, that's, that's what's happening. It was real. It's really interesting to work in a space, but also outside of it, or at least it was for me reading Enclave. Well, uh, the, um, there's, and I don't want to give it away, but there's several ways to do, to do, uh, to do a twist. And, mm. and I suppose, um, in a, in a way, uh, a fun thing to do, is to let people expect a twist and then not give them the twist they're going to expect. Mm. Or yep. let people ex- – and I don't like my audiences being um, firm in their assumptions and getting what they assume they're going to get. I don't, I don't like that. That's no fun for me. Mm. And I, I, to be honest, my my regular readers, and I do I do have people – there are people out there who, who love my books and, and my short stories and almost everything I write, and – they actually like not knowing, like not not being able to um, um, assume their assumptions are going to happen and pan out the way they want. People want, when they read my books, people want to um, be a bit more. Um, they want they want the, the the shock that happens to be not what they the shock they expected. Mm. So I don't want to be. M. Night Shyamalan, who I liked his early movies and his later ones not so much because um, his. Um, twists became too, way too predictable, mm. and I think that's what kind of why his later movies were not as enjoyable as his earlier ones. So I, do, I don't want I don't want to fall into that trap of um, people thinking I've got a formulaic way to throw in a, a, a wild bend in the middle of a narrative. I don't want that to be formulaic at all. Mm. I had M. Night Shyamalan in mind at certain points in your book, and I'm glad I didn't drop that in because I don't know I don't know where in his canon any reference I made would have fallen. It might have been a movie, what, one of his that you didn't like. I want to. I need. I need to just acknowledge that Enclave goes a lot further than we're going to be able to talk about. Once again, you've left me saying, mm. wanting to say something like we we'll, we should come back and have this conversation again in a year's time when more people have read it, but. 
I started with this idea that you had pulled elements out of our our daily news feeds and, you know, exaggerated Mm -hmm. it, uh, grew them to the nth degree. You don't just do that within the community of Safe Town. A lot of where we go in particularly the the third sort of section of the book also, I guess, takes things um, things from today and accelerates mm-hmm. them in a really interesting way. So, without asking for spoilers, without asking you for to give anything mm-hmm. away, Claire, if you could pick anything in the news right now and take it to its logical conclusion, good or bad, what would you do? This is, this is, we're kind of just, you know, spitballing here. What would you like to see happen better than it's currently happening? Well, I, I, I when I look at the, the news cycle, of course, the, in, in Australia, the, the dominant news cycle um, thing is the teal, the teal wave or the teal bath, that they call it during the election. That's probably the, the thing that has dominated our, um, our news cycle, and I think it's going to dominate the way politics has done, been, has done in Australia for a long time. Mm. And what's interesting about the Teal Wave is it's shown, it's shown Australia going abruptly a different direction to our the countries who we normally follow lockstep in, in political politically. Uh, Australia has gone a radically different direction to USA and the UK in the Teal Wave in that um, you know, the USA is going more economically conservative to an extent, though Joe Biden has changed that a bit. The um, Australia is still economically conservative. The the teals are economically conservative. We can't we can't debate that, but they are extremely um, socially liberal mm. as a rule, which is interesting because there's been a a, um, a comment before that people have been making for about ten years that um, the liberal and national parties and liberal nationals and the, the four parties that form the coalition technically mm. have. Um, shifted far to the right on um, on social issues and have have and people were still voting for them because they were because people were economically conservative in Australia and don't want to take radical risks with our economy mm-hmm. and that's fine I mean people can, can believe what they want but what's happening was the Liberal Party is um, party's social policies were far out um, out of, out to the right of the Australian public and what the teal wave is is them being punished on that. And what I would what I would like to see extend from the from the teal wave is um, Australia's politics become increasingly as socially liberal as Australia is as a people, because mm. because the politics have been far to the right of of um so uh, the, our politics have been so far to the right from how Australians feel as people that it's I think it's easy to um, misunderstand how far to the socially to the left. On social issues, Australia is so. Um, the classic example is the um, the severe punishment of um, Catherine Dees for her um, transphobia mm. in of Ringa. That that was a that was a they she actually got the worst swing against her in anywhere in, in her state, and that just shows that, that that's because she was an, a social conservative, even worse than the rest of the party. And I think we've learned less on that. And the Labor Party in their in their um, Acceptance speech of winning the election. Um, um, Albanese um, gave a um, basically his his for the four, first three or four points of his speech were basically teal talking points. Mm. So I think Australia has moved. Well, it hasn't moved 
to the left, some of them won't say to me, Australia's moved to the left um, socially. We've always been socially to the left. But politically, we've moved to towards social liberalism um, and economically still kind of middle ground. But to our political discourse has moved far to the left on social issues, and I'd like to see that go further. I'd like to mm. see us extend that to the point where um, the sort of um, social conservatism that's embroiling the rest of the world doesn't grow here. Almost like uh, a, a socially progressive mindset could lead to, you know, sort of larger responsibilities like good stewardship and even economic oh. benefits. Um, and I'm just like, I really want to, I'm, I'm like giving, giving Claire a big wink um, here about, about so many things. I'm going to, I'm Claire, I'm going to end the interview and then say things like after the end of the interview that would be counted as mm-hmm. spoilers. I am speaking with Claire yeah. G Coleman and we are doing that thing where we dance around the incredible twists and turns <laughs> of her latest novel, which is called Enclave. Claire, thank you so much as always for joining me here on Final Draft. Genuinely, thanks for having me. It was fun. That's it for this great conversation with Claire G. Coleman. Claire's new book is Enclave. It is out now from Hachette. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. It is a great way to find out what's coming up, what you've missed out on, and all the links you need to find the great conversations about the books you love. Look, today I spoke with Claire G. Coleman. If you're a fan of Claire's work, you know that she has twists and turns. You know that there is stuff we couldn't spoil. That doesn't mean I didn't ask Claire about it. So, if you've listened this far, you might be interested to know there is a spoiler episode where I ask Claire a few conversa- a few questions about Enclave that I couldn't feature in this conversation. If you've read the book, if you want to find out a little bit more about the narrative, tune in for our special spoiler episode of Enclave. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from incredible Australian authors on Final Draft. Till then, happy reading.